0: It's Wednesday, August 8th, and this is The Daily Dive. New details from the confession of the Parkland shooter Nicholas Cruz have been released. The Broward State Attorney's Office released a transcript of Cruz's confession to the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Paula McMahon, reporter for the Sun Sentinel, joins us to talk about the voices in Nicholas Cruz's head and what they were telling him to do. Next, there is a new outbreak of Ebola in the Congo. Genetic tests confirm that this outbreak is different from an earlier outbreak that was declared over in late July. So far, there are 43 cases, 34 deaths, and doctors are getting ready to use an experimental vaccine to treat those exposed to the virus. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, joins us to talk about how the vaccination program will work and also how security concerns may make it difficult to administer. Finally, Rick Gates continues to take the stand at the financial fraud trial of President Trump's former campaign chair, Paul Manafort. Laura Namias, reporter for Politico, joins us for the defense strategy to paint Rick Gates as a liar, and also the news that he used some of the money to pay for an affair in London. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. In almost all the cases that have occurred in the last decade or so, including the most recent with Nicholas Cruz, there were warning signs long before it ever got to the point that they were going to uh, commit some kind of atrocity. But people sat by and either didn't do enough or felt they couldn't impose constraints on somebody's individual freedoms. Joining us now is Paula McMahon, reporter for the Sun Sentinel. We're learning more about the Parkland shooter, Nicholas Cruz. It was Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2018, when he shot up Marjory Stoneman Douglas High School. The uh, Broward State Attorney's Office just released the transcripts for the confession interview that he did there was this talk of demons in his head voices that he was hearing and he was just exhibiting a lot of weird behavior what did we learn from that
1: Well we learned a lot. Of course in our community this is a huge story. I think it's a huge story nationally but particularly in our community it's very close to home. So people really want to know everything about what happened. It was a very strange interview. We haven't seen the video yet but we have read the transcript of his conversation with the detective. He talks a lot in there about demons in his head. He claims there was a demon voice that was talking to him. The voice told him to buy a gun, told him to hurt himself, It told him to hurt other people. He said he kind of continued to entertain this voice because it spared him from loneliness. So there was some very strange conversation in there. He was left alone in the interrogation room at times. And here in Florida, in our area of Florida, the uh, the policy is to keep the cameras rolling even when the detective is out of the room. And he spoke to himself while the detective was out of the room and said things like, kill me, I want to die, why didn't he kill me? And he seemed to be talking about this demon. And of course, the detective who interviewed him had a great deal of skepticism during the interview as to right. whether there really was a voice in his head. You know, at one point, the detective said something to him like, does the voice in your head tell you to take uber to the school that day and um nicholas cruz responded yes it
0: did it really just paints a picture of a very troubled person and that was what people suspected all along there was certain reports of him not getting the proper help that he could have gotten through the school um the the demons in his head he, he said that he started hearing them after his father died they intensified after his mother died so this stuff had been with him for a long time as you said, the cameras were rolling the entire time. It was like 11 hours of video. The actual interview was about six and a half hours. So they have tons of opportunities of him trying to explain what's happening. And even part of the video is going to be redacted. there's about 30 pages that are completely blacked out of this 216 page transcript. And this is to protect some of his privacy. Is that right?
1: Actually, under Florida law, they can release statements where he is making incriminating statements. But when it gets into the actual substance of him saying what he did when he went inside the school, there's no descriptions of the shootings. There's no descriptions of anything, like if he had any interactions with the victims in those last few minutes. It's all kind of around that. They were able to um, legally hold back anything that kind of gets into the real details of the terrible things that went on in that school that day.
0: But he did admit guilt.
1: He has admitted guilt, like he admitted guilt in that interview with Detective John Curcio. It's very clear that he was saying he had done it. Also, like separately, his defense team has said he is guilty. He accepts responsibility and he's willing to plead guilty in exchange for multiple life sentences. The case is really kind of coming down to now to whether he will be executed or if he will spend the rest of his life in prison.
0: A lot it was made about the gun violence, the gun control. Obviously, the students there at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas went on a tour of the country. He bought that gun legally, they said in this interview, in this transcripts that we find out, he bought that gun for about 560 bucks, and then he bought ammo online, he said he spent about $4,000 total on his guns and ammunition, and he bought it right when he turned 18 to protect himself from that voice again.
1: He also bought it just a few days after he was forced to leave Marjorie Stoneman Douglas because of issues with his behavior. So there's a couple of coincidences there. Again, we are we're not going too far at this point about the voice in his head. We're, that's what he's saying in this interview, but we haven't heard from psychologists or people who've examined him to kind of talk about whether there is a, a diagnosable mental illness there or anything like that. But yes, the students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, I think everybody has been very interested in watching how they have turned this terrible event into something that a movement for change and yes one of the the things that is particularly disturbing about this case is that this very disturbed person i mean the interrogation shows perhaps how disturbed he was but there was mounds of evidence out there long before this that he was a very troubled person
0: he had a long history of that and you're right it is would be curious to see what the video shows because he maintains he has this voice in his head and when the investigator leaves and he's talking to himself i mean one can only imagine that it's maybe that voice is interacting with him and he's talking back to it or something you know it, it's it continues to paint the picture of a, of a disturbed person
1: it's very interesting, the entire interview is so interesting because it, it gives us, there's nothing quite like hearing it from the horse's mouth and we've heard all of these things along the way from people who knew him who said, you know, he was known by a lot of people for being cruel to animals. He had an obsession with guns. He was very upset when his mom died. His dad had died when he was very young. But there's something about when you you hear it from someone who then went on to take the lives of 17 human beings in horrific circumstances, it certainly starts to clarify things for you in terms of how people knew beforehand.
0: Paula McMahon, reporter for the Sun Sentinel. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Oscar.
2: Bringing out all of those unsavory details of Gates' personal life is an attempt to convince the jury that this is a person who's not trustworthy.
0: Joining us now is Laura Namias, reporter for Politico and author of the New York Playbook. So Rick Gates is back on the stand for another day of testimony in the uh, Paul Manafort trial. There's a bunch of interesting, fun things that came out. He continued to detail how Paul Manafort was directing him to try to avoid taxes and all sorts of different things. What else did we find out in uh, his testimony today?
2: We found out that not only was Paul Manafort working for this Ukrainian oligarch, Viktor Yanukovych, to help him with his elections in Ukraine for a period of years and from around 2010 to 2014, he was also on retainer to give him general electoral device, general political advice. And that's something that we had never heard of before. We got much more detailed information about how Manafort tried to disguise income from foreign oligarchs in the form of loans so that he wouldn't have to pay income taxes on it. And we saw emails, specific messages exchanged between Manafort and Gates, in which Manafort expressed extreme displeasure at tax bills from the federal government and seemed to be directing Rick Gates to find a way to get around the tax bill, among other things.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, email that you're uh, referring to is the WTF moment, because he sent him an email and said, WTF? He's like, what's going on? I'm blindsided by this whole thing. Why am I going to have to pay so much taxes on this thing?
2: Right. Paul Manafort finding himself in the position that a lot of Americans find themselves in (laughs) when they have to pay taxes. I think probably a lot fewer Americans end up setting up or allegedly setting up shell companies and finding ways to disguise their income as loans.
0: And And you mentioned the money coming out of Ukraine. That's when he his money started drying up a lot as well, when those people were thrown out of power. So yeah. then he was scrambling to disguise income as loans so he wouldn't have to pay the taxes for it.
2: Not only that, but he was also falsifying financial records so that he could get bank loans. Not because he was about to become destitute or meet some kind of what we would normally think of as a threshold for being poor in this country, But because he had developed this really incredibly opulent lifestyle, I think a lot of people have seen the pictures of the $15,000 ostrich (laughs) sweatshirt. Everybody loves that one. Everyone's seen that. That kind of lifestyle is, is difficult to maintain. He wanted to maintain it. And so part of what he's on trial for is the falsification, allegedly, of financial records so that he could get money from banks in order to replace the funds that had dried up coming out of Ukraine.
0: The prosecution was done with Rick Gates, so it was time for the defense to take up. It was defense lawyer Kevin Downing who was questioning Rick Gates. They were trying to paint him as an embezzler, a liar, the instigator of all the criminal conduct. And they even got Rick Gates to admit that he had an extramarital affair. Right. Well, Rick Gates
2: has undoubtedly been prepared for that moment by federal prosecutors. Every aspect of your life is open to review once you get on the stand and, and you're cross-examined by the defense attorneys. Anything that they can pick up, they will. And it's the part of the trial lawyers, both the prosecution and the defense, to tell a story. It's a cohesive story, and they're each telling a different story. In the prosecutor's story, Paul Manafort is, is the arch-villain and, and Gates is his helper. And in the defense attorney's tale, Rick Gates is really the arch villain. So bringing out all of those unsavory details of Gates' personal life is an attempt to convince the jury that this is a person who's not trustworthy, whose testimony here about what Manafort did and said should not be believed.
0: What did they say about the affair that Rick Gates had?
2: They questioned him on whether or not he had been- company money to help pay for these overnight trips in London with a mistress, Gates strenuously denied that that was what he had done, but nonetheless, the the idea was raised. And the defense attorney walked through a bunch of different financial transactions to attempt to show that what Gates had said Monday about how much money he had embezzled from Manafort was actually a much larger figure. It seems like from what's coming out of court today that it was inconclusive, but the fact that it was raised and all of this new money and new information about payments was introduced by the defense attorneys today that could muddy the the picture of what exactly Gates and how much he
0: stole. Both sides had agreed to not really bring President Trump into the conversation very much, although he was brought up a little bit, a couple times. Um, I think uh, Richard Gates said that he might have, build the campaign for some personal expenses or something like that. Nothing really too salacious, but still using that money.
2: There were documents that appeared in court that referenced Manafort giving Yankees tickets to Mr. Trump. Manafort, when he was working for Trump's inauguration, attempted to secure a position as Secretary of the Army for a banker, one of the bankers who had helped him procure one of these loans that he needed in order to continue his lavish lifestyle. Now, Stephen Kalk is the name of the banker. He was the founder of the Federal Savings Bank of Chicago. He didn't ultimately get the post, but that brings us right up to the Trump inauguration.
0: Laura Namias, reporter for Politico, author of the New York Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. Patient's symptoms could represent a variety of common illnesses. The patient in question had reported being in an area of the Congo on a medical missionary trip, but he was in a location where the Ebola outbreak had recently been officially declared over. Joining us
0: now is Andrew Friedman, science editor for Axios. I've had this big curiosity about Ebola for the longest time. I mean, it goes back to uh, 2014, when the first case was diagnosed in the United States, I know at that time West Africa was just going through a huge outbreak and it finally made it to the states, you know, everybody was freaking out over how these contagions spread and somebody flew over here and then there was a few cases that happened. Right now, genetic tests are confirming that there's a new outbreak in the Congo. What's going on?
3: The Congo just had an outbreak of Ebola in the northwest portion of the country that was declared over at the end of July. Unbeknownst to the World Health Organization, the DRC Health Ministry was tracking a few suspicious cases in a totally different part of the country. And it turned out that it is, in fact, Ebola, and it is a genetically different strain. So there's a lot of similarities to it. But it's genetically distinct enough that we know this outbreak is not a continuation of the last one. So we had one outbreak uh, that ended in July. And uh, now we have one quite worrisome outbreak right near the border between the DRC and Rwanda and the DRC and Uganda.
0: Right now, there's a total of 43 Ebola virus cases And 34 deaths so far have been reported. Do you know what the security situation is?
3: This is a conflict zone. This is an area where it's the largest UN peacekeeping operation. It's 20,000 UN peacekeeping troops are there. There's about 100 different armed rebel groups operating. About a million displaced people from uh, several countries in that region. And now you have an Ebola outbreak. So the World Health Organization, they're trying to set up a program to contain the outbreak while keeping in mind the security situation.
0: There is a spike in kidnapping for ransom in this particular area. So people moving constantly around is going to make this really difficult. And as you were going to get into right now, I think, was this notion of this ring vaccination program that they were trying to get done. And this particular security situation kidnappings and conflict zone, so many people moving in and out is what's going to make this really difficult.
3: What they're trying to do is for every patient who's a confirmed case, they need to track every person who came into contact with them within a certain time frame. So they go out several rings in terms of contacts, be it their mother, their grandmother, their town physician, the person who sold them something at a supermarket. So they're trying to go out further and further so that they monitor those people for potential cases. And they are using an experimental vaccine that was developed in the United States, which we used successfully twice now in Africa in an experimental setting. And they're going to plan on start using that this week and see how well they can contain it. The problem is you can't do really effective vaccination programs of this sort if you're worried about getting kidnapped when you send out a vaccination team. So they are having to coordinate with the U.N. peacekeepers to possibly go out in an escorted way to do this work. It is a challenge. It's a totally different challenge than they're used to. The last outbreak was a problem because it was in such far-flung remote regions, and this one is in a conflict zone, and they never really had to face this with an Ebola outbreak, unfortunately.
0: That uh, experimental vaccine you were mentioning is made by the pharmaceutical giant Merck. It's not approved by the FDA, though. Why has it not gone through such approval yet?
3: They rushed this under a program that the U.S. government developed in response to the major outbreak that we saw a couple years ago. They agreed to provide a certain amount of vaccines for an experimental purpose that we could use abroad that we thought was safe and effective, but which had not yet gone through all the rigorous testing that you need to do it for FDA approval. So we knew enough to know that it was Faith in humans, but they didn't know whether or not it was going to be truly effective in the field. Merck, from their perspective, the countries that typically have Ebola outbreaks are the Congo, are other countries in Africa, we don't typically see that here. So it wasn't their highest priority. It was the highest priority of the public health officials of the United States who are trying to come up with a vaccine that works, that responds to these outbreaks, that prevents another West Africa outbreak that became a threat to the world from ever occurring again. So the priority really was to get something out in the field that would work. So they did that, uh, I believe it was 2015, in Guinea, which helped end that outbreak, and then they did this earlier this year, and now they should be starting it really any time now in the Congo.
0: Andrew Friedman, science editor for Axios, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me, appreciate it.
0: All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook, we love the feedback, so leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.